Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 109 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. As ever, I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. And joining us tonight, you may know him from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Death Sember, Children of Sorrow, and as of this evening, having quite a lot of explaining to do, it's Galen Howard. Hello! <laughs> How are you, sir? <laughs> oh, I'm in my bunker in Hollywood, going out for air uh, on, on brief occasion, and then quickly returning back to my spider hole. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as it goes. Yeah, you're, you're basically doing the same thing that we're doing, but in a much cooler place. That's debatable, but yeah, but sure, sure. Right, you have taken us back to 2010, a much simpler time. Remember when George Bush seemed like as bad as it could get? Yeah, we thought we had seen the worst. We we thought we were in for smooth sailing. Yeah, uh, no such luck. But, uh, no. yeah, another thing that was uh, hot on everyone's lips in 2010 was the film Rubber. Yes, it was the buzzword of 2010. Yeah, um, everyone remembers where they were. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, absolutely. Why this one? Well, I um, like a lot of the like a lot of the films that you bring up. I mean, I think you know, a lot of the films that keep you know coming up for me. I think I really I love films that really that have that kind of perfect intersection of highbrow and lowbrow. And I think that Quentin Pugh and Rubber has really kind of done that kind of perfectly in his own very twisted anarchic way and um i also just i love films that kind of gleefully break all the rules and i love the films both um a love letter and playful middle finger to cinema i love how it constantly punishes and rewards its audience often almost arbitrarily yeah um this was a first watch for me uh which we can get into uh my reaction as it forms great (laughs) Um, but uh andy what about yourself had you seen this before yeah as i as i mentioned on the minisode on monday i'd heard about this film and i think i'd saw the trailer at the time which really was just as i recall the trailer was just about the tire stuff there was none of the weird world of the audience watching there was none of that um and i right. just went out and bought it yeah i've watched it a couple of times in the intervening years and i kind of flip flop on it mm-hmm. like sometimes i think this might be genius and then other times i think god this is a pile of shit i, I don't really know and, and today i kind of came down on the latter side of that <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I'm going to start this out strong. That's definitely, I think, where you see people kind of fall. I think it's a divisive film in that way. And I think it elicits a strong reaction regardless. And I think, and and it's often, and, and and it can often elicit both reactions in the same breath. 
as I was revisiting this, I still really respect it. It's still a film I will defend, but I also see that because of the kind of the gimmick that it clings to, it might not necessarily withstand, you know, extended multiple viewings. Once you get the gist of it, I think further viewings might have diminishing returns you know, because so much of it is the surprise is the kind of, you know, because they do, they do bait you with this bizarre premise and then they kind of sneak in this other, the sort of the meta element of it. So for me, when I first saw it, I, I had no idea that that was an element of it. So it was kind of, there was this sort of delight at that. And now that I see it coming, it's it's a little less so. I mean, the film is basically kind of a prank. And, Absolutely. you know, once you know that you're being pranked, you know, it's like, okay. But again, it's like that that first, that it, it doesn't take away from that first viewing, you know, for, for me yeah. at least. Let me ask you this, Mitch. You obviously knew this was a film about a killer tire. Yes, I did. Yep. Did Did you have any idea that it was also this other thing? No, I had no idea. I remember when this came out because it kind of like, I don't know if memes were a thing at that time or not, or if there was a word for that yet or anything like that. But I remember that this was kind of doing the rounds as being this kind of like almost joke film because it was about a killer tire. And um, because I didn't see it at the time, I never really had the inclination to go back and follow up. So this was my first viewing because I didn't get to it and then I just didn't think about it for a while. But I went in kind of expecting something that didn't play it nearly as straight as this does uh, for so much of the time. Uh, But yeah, I wasn't ready for the kind of meta element of it and kind of how deep it goes with that and how far it goes with that. This was interesting. I feel like, Galen, obviously you being fond enough of it to choose it, and Andy, you haven't seen it a few times. I kind of feel like I'm going to get something out of this conversation from kind of like more informed and longer form perspectives than mine, because right now I'm still a little bit reeling from it. Mm. (laughs) Mitch, I don't know if I'm able to shed any more light on it than than that. (laughs) It's... uh... It's kind of inscrutable. Um, yeah, I do kind of feel like I've been punched directly in the brain. Well, th- there you go. I mean, that's compliment enough. If someone said that about me, about any of the stuff I was making, I'd be pretty happy with that. Um, Galen, you listen to the show. I think that you probably have a rough idea what we're going to do next. Um, mm-hmm. for, in fact, this this one's going to be interesting. Uh, Andy, do we have 30 seconds on the clock? Of course we do. Okay, Galen, when I count you in, are you prepared to give us your best 30-second synopsis of Rubber? We shall see. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, three, two... One, go. Um, An audience out in the desert observes the film, which they are a a part of, which concerns a, which the plot concerns a rubber tire that gains sentience and blows things up. Ultimately, people's heads falls in love with a girl, follows her to a motel, blows up more heads. Nobody knows why, and it doesn't matter. And fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't hate it. I don't hate it. You're not. You're not wrong. That's really the the film's central theme is fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now seems as good a time as any to address this because we do open on dining room chairs strewn across this kind of wasteland. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and the Californian desert. Cre- yes, Californian desert. We meet um, a character credited only as the accountant standing with armfuls of binoculars while a car pulls into shot, knocks right. down all these chairs, which did make me laugh. Yes. Um, <laughs> And then we meet Lieutenant Chad, who gets out of the car, gets out of the boot of the car specifically, which again kind of made me laugh. But also at this point, I don't I have no idea why when all that we've seen at this point, nobody has said a word. And all we've seen right. is waste ground, dining room chairs, a police car, and someone climbing out of the boot of that police car. I was like, why am I already so uncomfortable? Right. He, get, he doesn't even just get out of the, the boot of the car, Mitch. He gets out of the boot of the car with a drink in hand. Oh, yes. Uh, which is even weirder. Mm-hmm. Before he's even broken the fourth wall and given us this speech, 
or at least we think he's breaking the fourth wall. What is it about this that I found so disquieting? Hmm, interesting. What we find basically is that he, and I do think that the opening speech is pretty funny because he starts yeah. talking about how all great films through history have these completely random plot points. And he starts off by talking about the fact that E.T. is brown, the alien. We talk about Love Story and we talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but then he's also then he also starts talking about the arbitrary death of John F. Kennedy and JFK. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. And like, why why we don't see anyone go to the bathroom in Chainsaw? Yeah. And again, the answer to every one of these questions, as he tells us, is that there's there's just no reason for it. Just like a lot of things that happen in life, and then goes on to say how the film is an homage to no reason. Right. So um, so and which is basically, I mean, that whole speech is basically the filmmaker giving himself permission to do whatever the fuck he wants. Absolutely. And that's kind of that's kind of admirable in a way right. to come right out the gate and stave off any potential criticism that might come your way at the start by saying it doesn't matter what you say i've already covered my ass by saying fuck it anything goes here like i right. don't have to explain any of it it's so like embracing that anarchic meta kind of scenario it's in such a way that it pretty much corners the market on that like pretty much no one else can can do that anymore because he basically he did it so blatantly yeah and that like uh-huh. again that's that's kind of admirable to come out and and do something like that and then just say if you try to do the same thing then it's just really a, a, a facsimile of what i'm doing right and i kind of i kind of like that it's kind of punk yeah yeah it's very punk i mean the whole thing is very anarchic very punk very agitating yeah it has that punk aesthetic it's meant to irritate it's meant to agitate and i, I think that's interesting I, I think it is admirable okay i certainly agree with some of the adjectives that were getting thrown around there <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah you're feeling agitated and irritated cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we do wait him back at this point to realize that he has given this speech to um, an assembled crowd of people who all take a set of binoculars each and we realize at this point this is going to be the audience as it were who are going to be observing proceedings from a distance much like ourselves yeah so their experience is meant to kind of mirror ours you know from the beginning beginning when the chairs get knocked over i mean that's you know and they one of them are like oh we could have sat in those i mean he's already telling us the audience that we are at a disadvantage that our personal needs and comfort will not be considered throughout the course of the film yeah and then there's the little kid who talks about how boring it is at this point and we're maybe five six minutes into the runtime by this point and i mean again it's really just saying if you think this is boring now just, just, just wait. wait. So it, might, yeah. it might not get any better. Right. It's very on the nose, but kind of consistent that the audience are the avatar for the audience. Exactly. Yeah. At this point, I think it's fair to say that like the film proper begins. We get a title card. We see what feels like a very long montage of the dump that this uh, kind of takes its origins in. We see a lot of stuff, just kind of a lot of cast out stuff. But then, most importantly, Robert the Tire credited the actor credit Goodyear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, little brand endorsement. That's very smart. Yeah. Just before we jump into this, I just want to mention something really quickly. I noticed in the credits that the one of the people who did the music for this was uh, Mr. Wazo. That's the director's nom de plume. Yeah. Again, flying blind into this, I didn't know that. Um, oh, cool. Mr. Wazo, back I think nineties, early noughties, had a number one single in the UK. Yeah, with uh, Flat Eric, the song from the Levi's. Yeah, advert. there was a Levi's advert. 
Um, oh yeah music for it, and it became this like ubiquitous smash hit single i don't know what it was like everywhere else but in the uk you can get away from it for an entire summer i remember like the flat eric character and all of that i didn't know that it was associated with a hit single yeah that that's new to me that's cool oh there you go it's not often that i get to dispense trivia <laughs> exactly well in fairness mitch we did tell you that he was the director i yeah. guess so it was collaborative yeah <laughs> uh but robert the tire rises of his own volition from the sand. And it seems like initially we're kind of watching him learn to move. Yeah, he's like a baby gazelle. <laughs> I love that first little turn, that first little kind of, that, you know, him just kind of spasming in the back and forth in the sand. They shoot him like that first five minutes very lovingly. It's like, a, it's almost like a, like a nature documentary. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, because he does, he, he gets the hang of it quite quickly, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, he does. Um, Yes, he was, he, was, he, was, he was born for this, absolutely. Yeah, yeah he's a natural. He's a natural. Um... <laughs> also, we'll, we'll, find, uh, we'll find he's a natural in um, telekinetically blowing things up. Absolutely. Right now, though, in um, a chilling preview of The Bloodlust to Come, we see him crushing a water bottle and then a scorpion. Yes. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Point, the plot thickens. Like, and the plot thickens in double quick time because just when you thought he was a standard issue sentient tire, like those ones that you get, the, um, your normal run-of-the-mill sentient tires, right? Yeah, you know, just yeah. standard issue sentient tire. Um, as it turns out, no. As you say, psychokinetic abilities, which we see here with him initially using to blow up a glass bottle that he cannot dispense with by conventional means. He can't just crush it. Yes. Right, because first he tries to roll it over and he's like, oh, no, that's not enough. So then he's like, wait a minute. I can use my psychokinetic abilities to blow it up. That's the subtext that I was reading into it. I, I really like uh, Robert's early journey here, this the stuff with the plastic bottle where he realizes, yeah, he can pretty much get over anything. Uh, and then I love him pretty quickly realizing that it's very easy to snuff out a life with the scorpion. Right. And then the whole thing with the glass bottle, when he kind of realizes that there is no obstacle to whatever he wants to do and suddenly discovers he has psychic powers. Right. You could almost draw a parallel between like the, you know, kind of a subversive parallel between this and like the apes discovering weapons in uh, 2001. Sure, let's make that comparison. Yeah, please. Like, right, yeah, just just right now. <laughs> I, I love when it cuts back to the audience here and they're just like casually discussing Robert's abilities. Like, no one's surprised. Like, everyone's just kind of, yeah, sure. Yeah, they're just like, yep. well, okay. Yep, barely register. So, which to be fair, I mean, like, that's not a million miles off the mark for genre audiences and stuff like that. You know, like, I mean, I was, um, I was, I was describing to my girlfriend which film I was watching for uh, this earlier. Yeah. Uh, and she's not a horror fan, and she was like, "What is it?" And I was like, "Oh, it's rubber." It's about um, a sentient car tire that can uh, make people's heads explode with its tire brain. And, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like that sounds like the worst fucking film ever. And I was just thinking, I was like, but also, when I just thought it was that, I was like, yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> I, I think that maybe the audience being kind of impassive to the weird high concept nature of it is not that. I actually think that that's kind of spot on. It does intend to like have you kind of second guess it in that way and um, to kind of dismiss it outright. And it's begging you to like just get up and walk away like at every turn. You know, us to be thinking, yeah, oh, this is this is stupid, or oh, it's over now, or oh, what possibly can they do next? You know, and and it's constantly kind of kind of challenging that. The entire film's kind of an exercise in daring you to look away, isn't it? Right, it's kind of that endurance test of just like you know, I was definitely finding that, especially the second viewing of just like the endless sequence of of Robert's rise to sentience and psychokinetic glory, and it's just leaving you just with this 
tire that's giving you pretty much nothing because it's a tire and yeah, uh, yeah and just kind of <laughs> leaving you with that and again using the audience basically saying like is this all there is is this is stupid what you know uh, you know whatever so it's constantly echoing your own experience which i think is fun Mm -hmm. When we do cut back to Robert, I think that, Galen, what you said about it originally feeling like a nature documentary is right. I think that when we come back and see him harnessing his uh, psychokinetic abilities by uh, killing a rabbit, or in fact, at this point, I believe it's a bird. The first thing it's we see him doing again. Bunny crow. Yeah, it's, it's the tin can before the crow. Yeah, that's right. That's right. At this point, I feel like we've graduated from nature documentary to, like, Rocky training montage. <laughs> yeah, there is a bit of that, yes. There's that progression. There's the pro he's moving, and you know we we see kind of the evolution of the car tire, and I guess for all we know, car tires in general of just moving on from rolling over things to blowing up inanimate things to then blowing up animate things. <laughs> <laughs> and it, there's a point here where Robert seems to stop to sleep, and he appears to be breathing and appears to need sleep. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah, and the, I forget when we see this at what point in the film, but there's also the point where he drinks. Well, there's like a water puddle that he like drinks from. Mm -hmm. That's a thing. Oh, I, I thought he was just testing out the puddle. Okay, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, maybe I just read into it. it. It seemed like he was like he was he like was like needing hydration. Well, maybe that's why he spends so long in that swimming pool. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I want that to be the narrative, so I am making it the narrative. <laughs> we, yes, I mean, I, I think that's kind of the point. It is the narrative is whatever you make of it, in a certain and to a certain degree. Yeah, we're in no position to argue with now. There's an element of this um, that I think is interesting because, as you say, Andy, we do see that Robert has had a busy day of learning to walk and learning to harness his murderous psychokinetic abilities, and right. uh, is obviously in need of some R and R. So um, he has a wee sleep, as do the audience. That's right, and they, they get their little sleeping bags, and yeah. Yeah, we can kind of address it as this kind of unravels, but I think that this is a strand that, if anything, I kind of wish we'd seen a little bit more of. Yeah, we see these guys going to sleep and kind of, when they wake up in the morning, they bemoan the fact that there's no food and there's no water and there's nothing to drink. Right, yeah. Um, where this ends up going, I think, is kind of fascinating. But in the meantime, uh, Robert is also up with the lark, ready for day two. At this point, he blows up a rabbit. And at this point, I also wrote down, I'm not sure I like this tire. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a triggering, upsetting scene, for sure. I do think that it's quite interesting, though. Um, in this very short window of time, we see Robert the tire move through what are kind of like the classic stages of, like, psychopathy. <laughs> Sure. People who end up being serial killers were like the kids that pulled the wings off flies. Right. And stuff like that. And it's like, well, we've already seen him kind of starting out by like torturing small animals. And then we, we see what he goes on to do. It's like, I quite like the fact that he has that entire arc in um, a very short window of time and is also a tire. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> but I also like that Lest he's accompanied forget. everywhere he goes by jaunty music. Very jaunty music. Yeah. It's like very kind of um, back to like perverse nature documentary. It's almost like, like very kind of like Mondo Kane kind of music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah at one point, uh, roams across the desert to the smooth sound of Blue Magic's Just Don't Want to Be Lonely. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that. And then it is around that time that he he discovers his uh, his true love. Yes. Aha. Uh -huh. um, he does encounter his first human. So it's difficult to know if he actually falls in love with Sheila because he's in love with her or just because he's never seen a woman before. 
it could just be, yeah, it could be more more infatuation at first sight than love, yeah. But yeah, Sheila here, um, mm -hmm. played by uh, Roxanne Mosquita, who I don't think I've seen in anything else apart from Kaboom. Okay, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't seen much of her either. I, th I if I remember correctly, I could be wrong with this. I'm pretty sure that she plays a lesbian vampire in Kaboom, but that could be total garbage. But here she is playing a regular standard issue human. All we know is she's in a Gregor Rocky film, so she could be playing just about anything. Like Quentin Depew, anything goes in a Gregor Rocky film. Yes, but you're right. I mean, like regardless of what it is that triggers this, uh, Robert does take a shine at Sheila, I think it's fair to say. Breaks into pursuit, but is also hit by a pickup at this point. And mm. I must admit, the entire way that this sequence plays, because I, I have a couple of problems with this film, which we'll get to, but, um, but I think that, um, or a couple of things that don't necessarily land for me, but I think that the way that this one part kind of widens out, because obviously Robert gets hit by the pickup, her car breaks down. Yes. Uh, he drives past and doesn't help her. She eventually gets herself started again, and drives past when he stopped for gas and gives him the middle finger. But I love the fact that at this point, I almost felt like, because when Robert goes in, to the gas station and confronts this guy who left her at the side of the road. Yeah. I almost feel like he's defending her honor here. A little bit. Though, yeah. uh, though now that you're mentioning this, I was realizing something that, that I had assumed that I don't know if is, is correct. Because when I was watching it, I thought that Robert caused her uh, her car to break down. He does, yeah. He uses his psychic powers to right. cause her car to break down. I don't know what his plan is. I don't know what the next stage is. I don't know if she's supposed to be his first human victim. Um, but certainly when this guy hits him and bounces him off the road, Mitch, I would say it's less that he's defending her honour and more that he's just peeve. He personally feels disrespected, yeah. Okay, guys, <laughs> uh, um, excuse me for trying to project a little chivalry onto the tyre. <laughs> okay? Uh, he's not a chivalrous tyre at all, Mitch. He's actually quite lecherous and leering. <laughs> we do come to learn that, don't we? Yes. We do, yeah. We do get the first look at what is his weapon of choice, I think, really. I think that um, he does tend to kind of eschew conventional tire wisdom when it comes to killing people, and the, telekine <laughs> the telekinetic head exploding is uh, way more his weapon of choice. That's his modus operandi. Yeah, 100%. So I think that now is as good a time as any to mention the fact that there are a lot of exploding heads in this film. Like, a lot. A fair so, number. Yeah. I mean, more, more than most. More than most um, movies, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. I'm struggling to think mm -hmm. of another that has more. How many head explosions do Scanners have? There's the one that we all know, but that's about it. I think that Scanners is a quality over quantity situation. I think that people remember mm -hmm. that as having way more exploding heads in it than it does, but it's just because it's got that one. It's just so iconic, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Side note on that, uh, very quickly, uh, the actor who plays the father in the audience, the one who's, uh, who has the camera, the late uh, Daniel Quinn, who is the star of Scanner Cop 1 and 2. Scanner Cop. He was the, he was the, played the titular role of Scanner Cop, who also blows up people's heads. Ah, okay. So I don't know if that had anything to do with his casting, but there's a little tie-in there. Hmm. Also, just just completely aside, but also in amongst the audience, I noticed uh, Charlie Coontz as well, who I know best as being uh, Fat Neil from uh, Community. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the exploding head thing, right? Yes. I am torn between thinking that it's like quite a cool calling card for mm -hmm. the tire, and also mm -hmm. just by tipping point into the third act here that I'm kind of at exploding head saturation point. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, I start to think it's a little bit lazy. Right. But if that's legitimately all Robert can do, then fair enough, who am I? Again, right. who am I to argue? But it might have been nice to see an exploding stomach or a larger scale physical explosion, such as with the crow or the rabbit. Well, I think we do see a full-on human explosion. That's a, not, not, not for a spoiler alert, but at the very end. He does progress to a full human combustion. Well, of course he does. Yeah, that, that, that is true. But I think I'm, I'm maybe being a little bit too harsh here because there is a finite amount of things that he can be reasonably expected to do i mean he like, is he, a tire after all yes yeah i mean like he he, he lacks the opposable thumbs necessary for gangland executions sure. exactly he's not gonna garrote anyone no. yeah he can't it's, it'd be hard for him to waterboard you know sure, sure. can i just <laughs> yep. say by the way at this juncture i really like the mechanism whatever it is that causes robert to move i think it looks great on a technical level on a technical level, that little tire trundling around. Yeah. Presumably, presumably, it's got some weighted mechanism at the bottom that keeps the tire rolling around it. Yeah, there was like a, a sort of like like a radio, like like a battery operated mechanism, like in the body of the tire. I think that that's how they did it for a lot of it. I mean, I agree. I think it looks really cool. I think the fact that when it started moving, I never thought, "How are they doing that?" Says a lot. Right. Right. I was definitely thinking about it more the second viewing, but I just accepted that this is a sentient tire who blows things up. I actually think there's a lot to be said for how much characterization they're able to get into Robert. Yeah, I love his kind of the the way that he pulsates, you know, before, as he's using his, like, you know, psychokinesis. That's very endearing. Even the preposterous visual of him sitting on a chair watching the television. Yeah, watching auto racing. And uh, documentaries about tortoises. Oh, yes. It didn't occur to me in the moment, but you're right enough, in the sense that, like, they do go a decent way to try and give this tire a decent whack of personality yeah he savages this uh, this pickup driver and then follows sheila to a motel and at this point andy you're correct we do get an insight into the fact that uh, robert it's not really a noble chivalrous thing it's not it's, he's, he's, a, he's a lecherous character he is uh, i like that when she goes for a shower here it cuts back to the audience and they make a lot of kind of lowbrow tire sex puns <laughs> <laughs> right. I think they. I think they say things about uh, maybe he'll get a blowjob. Oh, yeah, just like, oh, okay. <laughs> see where this is going. I mean, like it's low hanging fruit, but it does land. Absolutely. <laughs> it's kind of. It's again. He's expressing his viewpoint of the audience, and you know that you know that they're just going to grasp onto the the surface level and not really look any deeper into what he's saying. Absolutely. At this point, it's well, it's at least around about this time that um, we cut back to, because we get to the end of another day in the kind of chronology of this thing. And at this point, it's acknowledged that the audience, they're going to bed at the end of the second day. And it's acknowledged at this point that they don't have any food. Yeah. Right. They're and, starving, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Yeah. And like, I kind of wish, because obviously not to jump ahead too far, but obviously like the vast majority of the audience get quite abruptly poisoned. Yeah. The scene with the accountant in the hotel room where he... Uh slaughters the turkey and he's got like all the little kind of apothecary style medicine bottles uh, i always right. think that's a really interesting and weird scene and he's on the phone to someone who he calls master it's all very very odd yeah yeah i've read reviews like you know they kind of yeah you know, describe him as kind of a, a renfield character which i think is pretty uh, yeah. is pretty on point yeah okay the thing that kind of frustrates me about the fact that we lose the audience on mass so quickly is that i think that the idea of their suffering being played out a little bit longer kind of appeals to me yeah they are fairly quickly dispatched at that point yeah i think i would have preferred if they'd done it in a more staggered phased way mm. like maybe have some of them be poisoned and some of them maybe 
kind of walk away when they've had enough which i think again would speak closer to the viewer's experience yeah i can see that i mean i think it would be interesting yeah to have some people ultimately be able to leave on their own volition a couple people narrowly escape you know instead where you know you know basically they all kind of drink the kool-aid so to speak and you know except for one member in a wheelchair played by wings hauser what a name great name yes <laughs> um but i don't i don't want to jump ahead too far but i kind of feel like as good a point as any to bring that up the accountant does turn up at this point in the morning and does bring them this kind of slaughtered turkey which they right. absolutely savage again this as a visual when they all kind of pounce on the turkey and start kind of like tearing shreds <laughs> from it with their teeth is horrible there's a lot of things about this that are kind of I don't want to say irksome because I kind of feel like it's designed to get that reaction. But like, there's a lot of this stuff that just needles me in a way that's like yeah. quite insidious and not enough to be like outright revulsion. There's just kind of a general big, you know, sheen of ugliness just throughout. I mean, that's kind of the idea. Yeah, there's a real unpleasantness to this on a weirdly yeah. molecular level, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Him just sort of unceremoniously throwing the turkey on the dirty ground and everyone just sort of kind of clamors to it and, you know, just kind of breaks into it like vultures. You know, yeah, it's very unpleasing, very unsettling. I think that this film actually, and it's probably to its credit, and I think that it's one of those things that it's difficult to frame as a compliment in the moment when you're watching it and you just feel kind of disgusted by it. But um, yeah. this finds a lot of very minor ways to be strangely mean-spirited in a way that's quite compelling. Yeah. <laughs> it's this other commentary on the audience of just them clamoring at any kind of nourishment or sustenance, you know, any, or any kind of comfort as uh, like animals, like, uh, like almost at a, you know, portrays them at almost like a, a primal level at this point yes exactly another murder here although it happens off camera the housekeeping the maid at the motel is killed probably yes. a reasonable penance for throwing robert out more ancillary characters here i say ancillary they end up becoming quite important because there's a roundabout this time i believe that um we meet to be fair all i have is kid and dad but um, yes basically right. the guy that owns the motel and his son yes side note the dad is uh played by the actor david bow who played Weird Al's best friend in UHF. Ah, right, okay. Oh, really? There's also a guy round about this time who looks quite a lot like Weird Al. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> the dad, I think it's Mr. Hughes, I want to say his name is, I'm pretty sure. He's a total asshole to his son, sends him off to go pick up pizzas and all that kind of thing. A lot of what happens next is the kid being kind of uh, absolutely adamant that he's had this run-in with a sentient tire and uh, the understandable skepticism that this notion is met with. Right. <laughs> But he goes out to get the pizza and encounters uh, the tire at this point, also while putting exploded bird entrails onto the pizza, which is gross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, little, yeah, again, also uh, displeasing. Yeah. Very much an outright act of malice. That's not like, that's oh, not yeah. like putting something like that's kind of like a prank on someone's food. That's putting something on there that might kill them. Right. Yeah. Or at least make them violently ill. Yeah. Violently I mean, that's, Ill, um, yeah. yeah, very unsanitary. Yeah. But that's going on around about the time that the audience are all dropping dead. That's right. You are quite right. Yes, the audience are largely they're dropping like flies in very unceremonious fashion while uh, while all this is going on. Right. This was another point, but I think because it's like it's just before this, you see like the first inkling that you have that something untoward. Well, it's not the first inkling that something untoward is happening. They were all just kind of fighting for one dead turkey a minute ago. That was pretty untoward. But um, the first inkling that something fatal or potentially fatal is going to happen is that you have this kid talking about this kind of burning stomach pain, and his dad just kind of basically telling him to fuck off, and that's horrible as well. Oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, dad, it burns. Can you help me? And he's like, oh, you know, man up kind of thing. And he's like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's like, oh, you ate too fast. Yeah, and then that's what people are saying to each other. Like, oh, yeah, you ate too fast. An important thing happens here, which is that, like I say, the motel owner's son 
is uh, adamant that the tire is alive, but he has to have this exchange with the policeman from the beginning. Officer Chad. Yeah, which is kind of the first real time that the audience narrative and the tire narrative kind of interact with each other. Right, there's that intersection, yeah. I think that that is important in terms of where this ends up going. Are you talking about the scene, Mitch, where Officer Chad kind of speaks to the other cops and says to them, look... It's fine. You guys can all go home now. This is all bullshit. It's all make-believe. Look, shoot me. Right. Because he shows up to investigate the murders ostensibly. And then he starts kind of this interrogation of the uh, the motel owner talking about the maid and all this kind of thing. And uh, the relationship yes. that they had. And it's at this point he's interrupted by the accountant who advises that the audience has been successfully poisoned. And at this point he's kind of like, right, uh, never mind. None of this matters anymore. Effectively, like the audience is dead. Therefore, the story is over. Right, the whole kind of, yeah, if a tree falls in the forest kind of thing, yeah. And so now we're, yeah, without the audience, yeah, the story's over. Yeah, at this point, this was the part where I kind of assumed it was going to sell me harder. And I actually kind of found myself living outside of it in a way that I really, I I wanted to engage with this element of it a little bit more. Mm. Because like, obviously, when he's kind of explaining to everybody, he's like, it's time to go home. Uh, It's over now. This is all fake. Shoot me. And they shoot him, and obviously he's openly bleeding from this wound. But then he carries on talking like nothing's happened. But then we realize that one member of the audience is still alive. Right. Yeah. Everything like, everything else kind of carries on. Like, it reverts to type. It reverts to it being this kind of, like, real existing narrative. He doesn't succumb to the multiple gunshot wounds. He kind of carries on doing what he's doing. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess... I, yeah, I don't know what necessarily the, the logic is of that. Yeah, because, yeah, he's bleeding from the wounds, but he doesn't seem necessarily noticeably debilitated. Uh, no, not not in my estimation, not that I can see. Um, right. Although what I would say is it, it does a credible job of making me question for a second what the reality is here, though. I think that's intentional, but I think it's a little bit muddled. I don't think the film knows exactly what it's trying to say either about this moment it kind of loses its like at a core at that point yeah i do i think it this is one of the only moments i think where they try to do too much mm. in the one moment and it doesn't quite work at all like it's never clear what they, they're actually trying to do off the top of your head what kind of follow through on this were you hoping for like like what kind of direction more serve this point yeah, Andy, what would, you, what would your payoff have been from this, given the option? Well, I, I think it should have been the much clearer kind of demarcation line between, right, we are actors. I expect the maid to be alive and to get back up. Look, if you shoot me, it's just squibs. I'm not actually going to die. But I, I feel like it's confused in the execution. I would have preferred it to be much more like, right, that's the audience. Everyone can break character now. And I would like to have seen more of the characters be comfortable breaking character mm-hmm. until they realised, shit, that maid is dead. And then realise, shit, we better get back into character now. Galen, I'd be kind of curious to know your take on this because I have a similar issue in the sense that I think that this feels like the kind of break-off point. You either get on board with the idea or you don't. Kind of like the remote control bit in funny games, where you acknowledge that this kind of like reality versus um, fiction thing is splintered. And I would like to have seen that more clearly split in the way that Andy describes, because I think that the fact that it doesn't commit to that makes me struggle a little bit with Mm. trying to figure out exactly what the film's trying to say. So you don't think there is a, there could have, or you think there could have been a more clearer delineation as far as the characters kind of breaking character. Yeah, I think I, I think I'm with Andy in that one. I think I would have preferred to have seen like more of a black and white thing there. Mm. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, again, I mean, it does become kind of a crutch, but it is he is using his sort of no reason principle to kind of justify the sort of arbitrariness of that. But I think it could have been fun. I think I, I agree. There is 
kind of a missed opportunity as far as taking that a little further, letting us see behind the curtain a little more, I think would have been fun. It didn't necessarily take away from the experience or the, you know, or the theme, but I agree that it might have made it a little stronger to to sort of kind of peel away those things a little more. But I mean, I think he kind of just wraps up point pretty quickly as far as just being like, oh, well, the movie's over and then, oh shit, it's not over. He makes that point and then takes it away again when, when we realize that the audience member is still alive. So for me, I think once he did that, I was I was kind of back on board. I think if he had belabored it too much, he might have he might have shown his hand a little bit. It's, it's less like something that I think is a flaw in the film and more something that I feel like is a little bit of a missed opportunity. Yeah, I can see that too. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I do yeah. like about this and kind of how we kind of how we kind of pivot out of this into uh, what's going to be the kind of final standoff of this thing is that Chad, the police officer from the beginning, who's now kind of the central figure in the main narrative, realizes that mm-hmm. the kid was right and basically has to go back and um, explain that the manhunt is a tire hunt. <laughs> right. You mean when he takes the, the tire off his own car and uses it as an example of the suspect? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes. when, and when and when everyone you know like in the kind of thing where it would be like oh what was the suspect's build or something like that it's like um what brand of tire is it and it's like uh we don't have that information probably brandless <laughs> right <laughs> yeah there's not there, there weren't a massive amount of points in this uh in this film that made me laugh and i don't think that it's really set out to particularly abuse you for the most part but that did and uh in terms of just like um sentences that i write in my notes for films on this podcast like i would never have wagered or never writing in my life i wrote for this the tire flees and the events of his short life play out in reverse very prosaic i like that yeah thanks very much thanks very much i appreciate that that's my, that like the, the only thing that my law degree has come in handy for is um being able to form decent sentences every now and again <laughs> like out of a cormac mccarthy novel well <laughs> <laughs> oh, honestly like it's a good job we've turned our video off you don't see me turning bright red and just like grinning from ear to ear right now oh. fantastic uh, so at this point, Chad realizes, like I say, the kid is right. He realizes that the t- the, the tire is sentient. A chase ensues. Um, yes. What I think is really funny at this point, actually, is that the accountant trying desperately to uh, bring this story to its... Well, I was going to say natural end. He's trying to abruptly end the story by uh, killing off the last member of the audience. He tries to poison right. the one remaining audience member who hasn't eaten the turkey by trying to feed him more poison food. <laughs> this plan plays out so poorly that he ends up just eating the food himself and dying. He's almost surprised by it. It's almost like he kind of like he assumes that he's immune to it. Yeah, he and he tell, this all plays out over an incredibly horrible story about how he caved his brother's head in with a massive rock yeah see this is another instance of this film just finding every available crevice to cram in something nasty right well mitch if you want something nasty like this the accountant's actual death is horrible it goes on forever oh very prolonged yes right and he's just describing every every little bit of pain that he's in is basically describing every moment that his body is, is gradually failing him. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very yeah. disturbing. Yeah, and the whole time, the wheelchair guy, he's just sitting looking out his binoculars. I don't even think he looks down at him. Ultimately, the, the accountant perishes as this chase and ultimately this standoff between Robert and uh, the police continues apace. Um, inevitably, a head explodes at this point. Of course. Um, I quite like the fact that the next big adventure for Robert here, we don't see it happen on camera. He flees the scene and stumbles on these th- these people having a tire fire and just kills them all. Mm-hmm. A little bit of justice there, yeah. Absolutely. This feels like 
he's watching his brothers die and his brothers and sisters being obliterated and he goes off on a three-day killing rampage because there's a chronology hop of three days here and there's then we rejoin yeah. the action just on this montage of images upon images upon image upon image upon yeah. image of blown up headless guys it's kind of his like rambo style rampage yeah yeah he's seen his fellow brothers you know, massacred and he just goes ape shit. Uh, yeah, which, which which I think is great. And like I say, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot to be said for the fact that this happens off camera. Mm-hmm. Because they eventually find him in a house. But Andy, you mentioned this earlier. The visual is him just kind of like chilling out in the house. He's killed the occupants of the house as well. Yeah, but he's just in an armchair watching NASCAR. Love it. Like I say, there's only a handful of times that um, visuals and kind of things got a laugh out of me in this, and um, this was one of them. But yeah, they trace his location to this house, and they come up with this kind of a, this this crackpot scheme where they basically try to kind of like honey trap him with a mannequin that looks a bit like Sheila. In the very broad sense, yes. And the mannequin is rigged up with dynamite, and it has a speaker around its neck, approximately the size of Flava Flav's clock necklace. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Yes. That Sheila is speaking through remotely. Saying sort of incendiary things to trigger him, to trigger a response. Yes. Uh Sheila, at some point in the three days when he went on this rampage, uh, now in cahoots with the police. Right. I've got to say, some of the stuff that she's saying is hilarious. I love that the comment that finally gets him to break is, you're just the rubber shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's too far. Like, everything else is, everything else he's able to, like, you know, it's like water up and duck back, but then calls him a rubber shit. It's like, too far. There's also the great moment where Officer Chad takes over, and he's trying to read the the lines of dialogue from the script as well, and that's, that's very, very funny. This is for me, one of the funniest, most effective segments of the film because it, it cracks me up. Yeah, um, I, I would say that, um, I don't know, I kind of feel like me demanding or saying that I think that this would be better if it leaned into the humorous elements more is more to do with me criticizing the film for it not being what I expected it to be. Right. Okay, I don't think it's necessarily a legitimate criticism for me to be like, oh, this made me laugh, it would have been good if there was more of this because that's not what it's trying to do for the most part. And the times when it is right. played for laughs, it works. I think that me framing that as a criticism is me projecting my expectations onto the film that I actually got and I don't think that that's reasonable of me. Sure, that's fair. Okay. I mean, because I think the whole point of the film is, you know, it's like part of part of its my forward momentum is constantly, is constantly defying expectation. You know, setting something up and then contradicting it. Yeah, I think that, I think that there's, there are lots of things you can call this film, but I think that subversive is one. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, almost every turn. But um, ultimately, this plan doesn't work. No, very anticlimactic, yes. The head explodes and the, the dynamite is not triggered or not to the point that they that is necessary to... To bring about Robert's end. Yeah, the head explodes, the body survives. At this point, the one remaining audience member returns. Yes. And, and I, I really like this, actually, because he basically turns up, wraps on the back of the police van, and when they open it, it's like, I was I was on board up till now, but this is he's basically just like, this is descending into farce. Yeah, this, this idea of the standoff is just kind of stupid. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah he proposes hurrying the action along with a bazooka or a flamethrower. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, he's like, why are you doing this like long form trap? It's like, it's like, why haven't you just blown it to bits? Right. Ironically, kind of what happens because Chad reaches the end of his terror when the the head of the the dummy explodes and nothing really happens, and he takes it upon himself right. to just barge in and end Robert with a shotgun. Yeah, vigilante style. Yeah, I love his delivery when he just when when he drops Robert's carcass, you know, to the side and just says, <laughs> "The end, bye." <laughs> 
Yeah, um, <laughs> on reflection. I think it's quite funny that he's kind of very dedicated to this preservation of the narrative all the way through and un kind of like this. It, it doesn't necessarily have to end organically, but it has to end in a way that he doesn't interfere with. And then ultimately he's just like, fuck this and just kind of and just riddles it with bullets and then just like hands him absolute rag of what's left of this tire. Yes. Essentially Robert's skin. <laughs> yeah i know it's uh, yeah I mean, it's very it's again very displeasing just yeah the way that it's just that carcass is just kind of flung to the side but um at this point the argument exists about um whether the, whether the film is over and i love it when he turns around and says it's not over he's been reincarnated as a tricycle that's the biggest laugh that the film guy <laughs> It's an incredible line. And we discover he's speaking quite literally as Robert is has been reincarnated as a sentient tricycle. Yeah, a little red children's tricycle. He yeah. kind of rolls slowly out yeah, the door. Yeah, and he blows that guy to smithereens. He at first is like, like saying like, I'm just an audience member. I, I am not part of the story. I'm just an audience member. You know, you don't. You don't have to blow me up, and but, but of course Robert does. Absolutely, uh, Galen. As you mentioned earlier, this is this is the leveling up moment. Like this is this is when uh, we go from head explosions to like a full body explosion. So I am very like right. kind of like I, I think that this is designed to make the point that the tricycle is very much definitively Robert 2.0. Well, he's got three wheels. Robert yeah, 3. that's 0. true. He's got three tires. He's thrice as strong. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point. So I mean, do you think that his ability for a full body explosion? is because of the three wheels or is it a combination like of that and just his general like mental evolution i actually think it's more to do with him evolving than necessarily having three tires um whether it's the fact that he now has three wheels or not i like the idea of him emerging from the experience a stronger tire i think so ah, okay yeah phoenix rising from the flames kind of thing but not just that much he's also developed another rather interesting power go on he can call other tiles to his clarion call. yes right yeah it's his little pied piper yeah i guess this is as good a time as any to pull into how this actually ends because he emerges as a tricycle he explodes the one remaining audience member uh, demarcating by the film's own internal logic the end of the film right mm -hmm. sheila gets into her car as far as she's concerned it's over i love the fact as well robert in his new stronger form no longer dependent on this fixation on sheila pulls up kind of like in as much as a tricycle can shoots her a look carries on yeah i love the little glance like yep. you know i see you girl yeah yep. and then just carries on bigger fish to fry whole world mm -hmm. out there but i feel like this point is delivered to us like fairly emphatically because we watch that tricycle run for a long time we sure do he's got a long journey ahead of him yeah we see a lot of it. Mm -hmm. we sure do we see this meandering travelogue of just a you know robert you know cruising along to the uh pulsating sounds of mr wazo <laughs> <laughs> yeah travelogue is such a great word for that moment as well <laughs> Right, uh, but you're right. Yeah, it's like he he emerges from this experience a stronger man, and uh, yeah, he he summons yes. this army of tires as a kind of final payoff to this. I think that this is pretty cool. But do you want to touch on the fact that over the course of the end credits to this, we do see the opening speech that we spoke about earlier? Um, right, shot from another angle. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's at this point that we understand that the speech that Chad gave into the camera at the beginning about the entire notion of no reason and all this kind of thing. It pans back and we see that he is delivering this to nothing but a velvet rope. The audience that we saw in the opening frame are gone, or in the opening kind of, or in the first look that we get at this, they're not there. It's presented as though he is giving the speech to nobody. So my question is, given that, 
the entire subsistence of the plot and the central narrative of this film is predicated on it having a captive audience. To what extent does the final reveal of there being no audience pull the rug out from under the entire thing and if that's not what it's been saying this entire time what is it saying that's a moment where i'm i'm not quite sure what's um i think there's a there's a number of different ways you can you can take that you know we do have the cutaway to the audience so then it's the, the question of like well where was the audience to begin with uh, are we are we saying that there never was an audience to begin with what do you think he's saying there well, I mean, this is like this is kind of what I was curious about. Well, what's your read? What's your read? Well, the Mitch? entire story is framed on the fact that, and uh, Gail, and you summed it up very nicely earlier on when you said that it kind of, it's kind of predicated on this: if a tree falls in the forest thing. Yes. Where, like, um, you know, it's like if there's not an audience for the story, does the story matter? Does the story exist? And I don't know. I can't tell if suggesting that there was no audience in the first place, which by the film's own logic renders the entire conceit of everything that we've just watched pointless, is correct very very smart or too clever by half and kind of if you pardon the pun tiresome <laughs> oh. the inevitable tire pun yeah you know so. what? I'm, I'm quite surprised that it's taken us an hour to get there and i am sorry that i was the one to do it but yeah that's that's the crossroads i hit with it i think that for me that ultimately doing something in the credits that's a reveal that like i say by the film's own reasoning renders the entire experience pointless is kind of on point but at the same time when i realized that that was what I was doing i also just went <sighs> right i think from my perspective it, i'm kind of of both schools of thought i think it's definitely narratively on point narrowly and thematically on point um that that revealed but i also don't think we necessarily need it i think we could have just been fine keeping with the with the original conceit it's certainly on point for him to make a point and then completely dismantle it and then make a point and then dismantle it again so i think it definitely works in that regard but again it's, i don't think it's something that we that is necessary to the film. Andy, I don't know what your take is on this, but I kind of agree with that. I think that it's a legitimate thing to add. I'm not certain if I needed it. Yeah, to me, it's a, it's just a middle finger at the end of the film. Of course. More than anything else. I mean, there's no reward for staying watching it. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, if you keep watching into the credits, it kind of lulls you into a false sense of security and makes you think that it's worth watching through the credits. If you take that gamble and stay the course, you will ultimately be disappointed because you will find nothing there to make the previous 80 minutes any more palatable or any more understandable. In fact, you'll be left with additional frustration. Of course, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to be uh, like too accommodating of the fact that, but that's what he's trying to do. Because I kind of feel like if you just watch something that constantly aggravates you, then... <laughs> <laughs> Then you just hang out with me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like if I want to aggravate myself, I can just listen back to old audio of myself talking. <laughs> um, but yeah, with that, we're out on rubber. And right. Okay. Uh, Andy, do you want to take this first or will I? Yeah, I'm just going to really reiterate what I said at the start. I mean, this is my third or fourth watch of rubber now. And I still struggle to think if it's this incredible subversive punk slice of don't give a fuck cinema made by an auteur who's going to do what he wants and fuck everyone else everyone else be damned or if it's just self-indulgent shit and yeah i still struggle to come down on the line of that i think i actually genuinely think it's a bit of both to be honest it, it is an incredibly audacious piece of filmmaking i think and i, th I, I don't know and part of me really admires it <laughs> 
I feel like my problems with this are more my problems than the film. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair statement. I think that's kind of the the reaction that, that the filmmaker's going for. I mean, I think, and that it is really, he is really just you know, trying to make an affront to people's personal taste. Yeah, it is almost like trying to provoke this sort of like self-reflection in that like, regard. Uh, yeah, because I, I think I acknowledge and understand that I think that this is designed to be a maddening experience. It's designed to, it's designed to aggravate and it's designed to provoke. And I actually think that it's about time that I stopped kidding myself on that that's something that I want from cinema. Mm. Like, um, uh, that, that, that's not what you want. I think that I should probably start being honest about the fact that if I'm going to watch something for 80 or 90 minutes, that is just going to constantly infuriate me. That it's just maybe not necessarily what I'm looking for. But also, I feel like I should also have the wherewithal to know that that doesn't make it a bad film. I don't think there's much. I think there's something to be said for a, a challenge in film experience and. Although it's stupid, it's a bit of killer tire that blows people's heads up. I think Rubber's quite challenging. Like, I'm not going to sit here and recommend this with without qualification to listeners. No, I wouldn't either. But I do think that it's I do think it's worth seeing. And Gillen, I do have to thank you for suggesting it because it's probably something that I would have just continued ticking along and just not checking out. And I think that it probably would have just existed as something that I would never have seen. But I think that now I've seen it, it's made me think a little bit about the fact that this is like i say this is so designed to aggravate um right. as far as i'm concerned i think that it does what it sets out to do in the sense that i think that it's designed to to make you question certain things about yourself as a viewer and i think that the fact that i'm not particularly interested in answering those questions isn't the filmmaker's fault that's a really fair point everyone's viewing experience is personal and it's subjective and so it, you know so everyone's going to have that sort of particular response to this kind of film you know based on the kind of preferred viewing experience they have based on their own experience and the values and andy I, I agree there's nothing wrong with the challenging film experience but like i think i prefer things that make me uncomfortable in a different way from this i feel like when you realize that you're just watching something made by someone who is setting out to irk you that it's not something that necessarily sets right with me but i get why people like this i understand why people respond to it mm -hmm. and i also think that it's a very hard film to be indifferent about right and i think that there's something to be said for that yeah and you bring up a good point as far as where does that line fall for the film that is intended to irk the audience to promote discomfort elicit discomfort you know that that's its primary motivation and um and i think the like the question of like does the filmmaker earn that or not i feel like an, like another film that tries to do that that you know and fails is like a movie like kevin smith's tusk that's sure. like you know really just oh, yeah. um <laughs> Yeah, that's really just there to anger the audience. And I and I think in that film, I just find utterly offensive. Whereas like this, I, I think there's I mean, there's so much of the film that's very much that's very fun. That's very unexpected. And there's a kind of a joy in it. You know, under the nastiness, there's this kind of joy in the sort of anarchy. It's both saying, like, fuck you to the audience, but it's also inviting them to kind of join in and embrace it. Um, I think Tusk's an interesting comparison point here because I have seen Tusk and I hate it. And the reason that I hate Tusk <laughs> is because I hate the third act as much as I love the first two. Yes. And I think that the thing that irritates me about Tusk in a totally different way is that I was incredibly on board with it for the first hour and then found the last half hour of it to be just incredibly maddening in a way that undid a lot of goodwill that had been built up in the first hour show. Whereas with this, I, I kind of realized fairly early doors i was like right okay this is something that i wouldn't necessarily dig up by choice like if i knew what i was right getting. and if you were asking me to watch something that made me uncomfortable i would sooner watch martyrs than i would watch rubber 
Oh God, yeah. Like, like, um, but, um, but I didn't mind being challenged by it for the entire time when I knew that that was what was happening. So yeah, I think that I don't know. There's something that like it's it's not a film that's for me, but also I'm not gonna sit back and say that it's garbage either because I think that that would be that would be me not realizing the distinction between me not liking something and a film not doing what it's set out to do. I mean, I think, and just only for the point of comparison, and this, you know, back, you know, speaking of Tusk, I think the the huge blunder that that makes is that it, it kind of it saves its like final fuck you moment, you know, not to give anything away, but like you know, in the in the end credits where it reveals where the the whole film is just basically a joke, and 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 it waits until the entire end credits to do that. Whereas in this, it tells you right out the gate, right in the first frames, what it intends to do. That's far more interesting to me. Agreed. Gillen, before we wrap up, I think it's only fair to take a sec to talk about what you've been up to and what you, uh, obviously right now is a little bit kind of, it's, it's a little bit of a kind of transient time, but you've been in a lot of really um, kind of interesting stuff from a genre perspective in the last little while, Death Sember included, but do you want to take a sec to just talk about anything that you think is kind of worth a mention? Yeah, I've been, uh, I mean, I'm primarily a character actor, and so that means I've, I've been able to kind of work, work across genres and, you know, a lot of very offbeat kind of material. Yeah, I, I was, I did a did a segment in um, the the upcoming holiday horror anthology film December, which was it's kind of a giallo homage, which is really fun. And then yeah, I did. Um, I've actually done a few a few things in the the horror anthology uh, genre, which is kind of like one of my favorite horror subgenres. And um, another one I did was a, a a horror anthology called American Nightmares, which was from the team that gave us Tales from the Hood. So nice. it kind of follows okay. in that same format. Um, so that was really fun. Galen, where can people keep up with you on social media? I'm, I'm probably most active on, um, I have a Twitter account, but I'm also, I'm probably most active on my Instagram, which is at Galen Howard. Not, not as much going on. So it's usually just me um, posting about things that I like or, you know, the occasional mask selfie. <laughs> i kind of feel like i kind of feel like we're all becoming progressively more active on instagram than anything else. i think so i think it's just the it's the most interactive format and it, you know people definitely you know definitely respond to the visual element and i, I mean i think i think I, I was finding on twitter it's just there's this just you know constant to be clever and a limited number of characters so um i think there's just a lot more freedom on instagram and a more sense of community in that way yeah, and I've I've used uh, lockdown to actually restart my own Instagram. Yeah, how's that been for you? I, I, it's been fine. Yeah, I, I had closed it down. I was I was tired of it. I was starting to phase out social media, and then in in this time, I thought, yeah, let's just use this to post photos of my son doing stupid shit. <laughs> I love that. Galen, thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us. We really appreciate it. And thank you for bringing rubber to the yeah, table as well. You. It was um, a really interesting selection. And hopefully you'll see in the next little while when we start kind of tagging you and things like this, our listeners are pretty engaged with the films that we choose. So you'll hopefully see some opinions, positive or negative, flying around in the next little while. Galen, if you don't mind, what's, what is your Twitter handle if you don't mind sharing it with the world? I hesitate because I, I gave myself a very cumbersome Twitter handle, but it, it remains at underscore galen underscore howard underscore okay all right if you can get your head around that you know please follow me <laughs> so, so, so if in doubt underscore right yes yeah. <laughs> yeah i i forget what inspired that but yes but yes cool okay um galen like i say thanks so much for doing this this has been this has been really fun So I am really, really curious to know what the listeners make of this one. 
yeah, yeah. So that it's uh, an interesting one, and I, 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 like you say, I would be keen to know what other people were making. Absolutely, big thank you to Mr. Galen Howard for joining us tonight and for bringing Rubber to the table. Yeah, yeah, and uh, thank you to Robert. I hope he's found some peace. Yeah, we can, we can, but hope we can, but hope. But with that, we are once again out. Episode one hundred nine, curtain call. We will, of course, they'll be back on Monday with Minisode 110. Yeah. Powerful numbers these days. Powerful numbers. I can't believe we're in triple digits. That's still... Yeah, it still has to sunk in, has it? But we'll be doing all the usual stuff on that Minisode, of course. We will be talking about what we've been watching. We'll be talking about my 90s side quest. That reminds me, I should watch something from the 90s. We will be playing Mitch's Pitches. We'll be letting you know everything you need to know for next week's episode. If you want to get in touch with us between now and then, you can, of course, do that through a variety of platforms. Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us at Strong Violent PC. You can email Scenes at gmail.com and you can interact with other listeners on our Facebook group, The Trud Locker. Yep, and we have a website, strongviolentpod.com, where you can go and have a little look around for some merch. You can check out live dates, Spoiler alert, there aren't any. They're going to happen. They're going to happen. It's a question of when, but it's happening. Yeah, and of course, you can check out our Patreon. Yeah, if you're feeling super generous, we have started a Patreon in the last month or so, and um, a few different tiers there with a whole bunch of free stuff, bonus content, all that kind of stuff. If you want to go and check that out, you can do it at patreon.com slash scenes. Yeah, and some people have been incredibly generous, so I can't even tell you how much it means to me, and I know how much it means to you. Absolutely, yes. And we will be thanking the latest batch of generous contributors on this week's minisode. Including the anonymous contributor. Absolutely, yes. An anonymous contributor emerging from the shadows. It's not me. It's definitely not, I promise. (laughs) We're back Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it's better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean. 